going to hear the voice of God through his word as an act of worship. The public reading of, of the Bible involves listening. So let's open our ears and our hearts to hear what God has to say to his people. The first reading today found in Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah chapter 14, starting in verse 7. Although our sins testify against us, do something, Lord, for the sake of your name. For we have often rebelled, we have sinned against you. You, who are the hope of Israel, its savior in times of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who only stays a night? Why are you like a man taken by surprise, like a warrior powerless to save? You are among us, Lord, and we bear your name. Do not forsake us. This is what the Lord says about his people, or this people. They greatly love to wander. They do not restrain their feet, so the Lord does not accept them. He will now remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Verse 19. Have you rejected Judah completely? Do you despise Zion? Why have you afflicted us so that we cannot be healed? We hoped for peace, but no good has come. For a time of healing, but there is only terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, Lord, and the guilt of our ancestors. We have indeed sinned against you. For the sake of your name, do not despise us. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember your covenant with us and do not break it. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No. It is you, Lord, our God. Therefore, our hope is in you, for you are the one who does all this. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good evening. Second reading tonight is from the 84th Psalm. The introduction tells us that it is to the chief musician on the instrument of gitit, some sort of a guitar, a psalm of the sons of Korach, you remember them. Sons of Korah had a reputation. The entire clan got burned up with fire, swallowed up into the heart of the earth, public execution before the whole nation in the wilderness. But someone must have survived. Someone must have learned their lesson. Someone ended up writing scriptures. And if the sons of Korah are in the Bible, there's hope for me. There's hope for you. Special words. And they write, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. Yedidot mishkenotecha in the Hebrew, in plural. God dwells in many places. My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Oh, that this would be our hunger, our thirst. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage, mesilot in the Hebrew language, people in whose hearts the highways of God run. We are a people in motion, always changing, always growing, always transforming from his likeness to his likeness. Every day is a change. And they say they are blessed 
in whose hearts are the highways of God. As they pass through the valley of Bacha, the valley of tears, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools or blessings in the Hebrew language. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel portion for tonight is Luke 18. We're also going to read the gospel portion for next week as well. And uh, David will allude to the reason why in the sermon. It's a tradition to stand when we hear our king teach and speak. So brothers and sisters, the good news according to Luke. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And from Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. So he came down at once. He welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this. And they began to mutter, He has gone to be, with the, to be a guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. If you were here this morning, I apologize, but uh, we have to do this for the broadcast. Do what you're thinking? You'll find out. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we um, all claim to be disciples of students of your son, Jesus. If that is our, indeed our serious intention, we ask that uh, you would send his spirit into our midst and to teach us as we sit at his feet and learn from him. We ask that uh, not only would his words and his life bring us blessing, but challenge as well. And perhaps even a loving rebuke if necessary. Lord, give us grace, we ask, and give us courage, Lord, not to be afraid of uh, imitating uh, our Lord and Savior, following after him, 
and putting his words into practice. And we do ask these things so that uh, the Lord Jesus may be glorified in our midst. Amen. Yes, we do have two gospel portions today. That's not very Anglican, but uh, I'd like to remind uh, everybody that um, liturgies and lectionaries and traditions are all very wonderful, but uh, we don't serve them. They serve us. So it is possible to change and to fool, mess around. Though don't say that to too many bishops, okay? <clears throat> so I'd like to just start by um, looking at the parable and then moving on to the incident in uh, Jericho. And the parable is short, it's sweet. It's in the context of Jesus making his journey to Jerusalem. And as he journeys to Jerusalem, um, at least in Luke's gospel, 10 chapters of teaching. And these 10 chapters of teaching largely, largely concern or largely reveal something about who he is but probably even more significantly in this portion of scripture, it's telling us what it means to be a follower, what it means to be uh, a disciple. And I uh, always think that's a good rule of thumb for any gospel passage, whether it's in our devotions or our Bible studies. I think uh, we can always start with two questions. What does this passage tell us about Jesus? And what does this passage tell us about being a follower? Yes, a student, an imitator, an apprentice. Some, we said a few weeks ago, sometimes the word disciple loses all of its meaning uh, because it's thrown around in religious circles and, and becomes a cliche. So Jesus is teaching us about apprenticeship. Yes, what it means uh, to, to learn from him. And it could be seen um, very easily as a polemic uh, against the Pharisees. But before we go down that avenue, I would put on the brakes because I think there's something more to the parable than just speaking or exposing the Pharisees. And further, I think as many of you have heard us say in the past, that we also need to be really careful about the way that we understand uh, the Pharisees. Because on one hand, Jesus is quite close to them. He lives like a Pharisee. He teaches like a Pharisee as, a, as an itinerant, going from uh, place to place. He has disciples like the other Pharisees do. He goes from place to place and doesn't charge money for, um, for teaching. He has the same biblical worldview as the Pharisees. He believes in life after death, rewards and punishment, demons and angels. He spends a lot of time eating, drinking, talking to, interacting with Pharisees, doesn't spend the same quality time, if you can call it, with those uh, Sadducees or those or zealot types, or perhaps even the Qumran, the, or the not Qumran, the Essene communities, uh, the Yachad. Uh, um, he hangs with people who are very close to him, yet at the same time, because they have so much of the truth, yes, because they're, they're, they are, are um, you might say, so far along, yes, he's critical of the place of those uh, areas of where they fall down. And so I think that has to be, surely we have to, uh, we, we do have to keep that in mind. 
further, yeah, we also have to, I think, be uh, a little bit reflective to think about the Pharisees and our relationship to them. And it's quite true that in church history or even in the church today, there are many of us who sort of fall into a pattern uh, of different Jewish groups, you know, that existed in the first century. We have amongst ourselves the zealots, those who are convinced as believers that what we need is some kind of revolution or some kind of violent reset uh, and that uh, the only change that will come is going to come through violence. And we have also those uh, amongst us who somehow find the world so daunting and so overwhelming that you know the solution for them is just to go somewhere and put your head in the sand and you know, hope it all passes you by. Uh, and this kind of reminds us of the whole, the Yachad and the folks who lived at, at Qumran. And then again, you have folks who say, well, if you can't beat them, join them. We want our share of the pie. Therefore, we need to go into the system. And even if it, uh, even if it uh, uh, causes, uh, or even if it, it means we have to compromise, let's do it. You know, why should all those pagans, sinners, etc., etc., be rewarded and uh, not us? The Pharisees just had a, the, the, the solution of the Pharisees was really simple, is that Israel, through the schoolhouse and through the ritual bath, should be holy, and that uh, it should be in the world, but not of the world, if I can use Christian language. And uh, I think putting aside you know, some of our prejudice, we, most of us would agree with that approach. And further, we probably should probably not only agree with that approach, many of us might want to be, take a closer look at the Pharisees because there might be even a deeper relationship than us following a similar pattern. And that relationship is based on the understanding that the Pharisees were the pious, they were the religious ones, uh, they were the ones who go to the synagogues and they did pray. And uh, Jesus accuses them of many things, but uh, on the whole, they weren't robbing banks. They weren't out hijacking airplanes. They were not committing adultery or engaging in some kind of um, child abuse. They weren't embezzling millions of you know, dollars via the internet. Yep, they're the people who sat in the synagogue and were kind of satisfied with themselves that they weren't out doing these big, terrible, horrible sins. And uh, what Jesus so often criticizes about them, yes, is what, he's, what goes on inside not what you see on the outside. And uh, very often in the church, we think, well, I, I, I was born again. I stopped smoking. I stopped drinking. I, I gave up, you know, watching porn, whatever. I'm okay. I'm okay. And yet our hearts, like the Pharisees, might be filled with bitterness. Or we might... Uh, refuse to extend mercy to people. But of course, not many people will know it because on the exterior, we look very nice. We look very pious. We look, you know, like we fit into the community. Um, I'm not going to be generous. I'm, after all, why should those people benefit <clears throat> from my generosity? And so when we come to this parable, we shouldn't so easily dismiss the Pharisee and say, oh, ironically, oh, thank goodness, I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that Pharisee who stands in the temple, yes, and separates himself from others and starts proclaiming, yes, um, 
you might say how, how uh, well off he is or how fortunate he is in, uh, in a spiritual way. Yes. So we just might be the Pharisees. And this man uh, and his prayer, you know, might be something that we examine to make sure, yes, that even in the most subtle way, we don't make the same mistake. Uh, and again, I'm sure many are saying, no, that's not me. But let's wait a minute, shall we? And so in Luke 18, uh, here uh, Jesus says, two men go up to the temple to pray. And this is, by the way, in its context, significant. This is the place where one, where uh, you would go up just to be before the Lord, to appear before the Lord in the temple, the place where heaven meets earth, the place where one comes and humbles themselves before God, a place of uh, submission, you might say, a place of worship, and indeed proper worship, because there is nothing more than God, that, there's nothing worse that God hates than uh, worship that's done in the, in the wrong way and in the wrong spirit. And so these two men go up to pray, and the Pharisee stands up, and he prayed, very interestingly, he prayed about himself. He prayed about himself. Now, isn't it fascinating that we live in an age when worship and even prayer is so extremely self-centered? Everything is I, me, me, mine. Yes, when the self has taken on an incredible, yes, an incredible importance. Uh, and not only have we come to a place of extreme narcissism and extreme self-centeredness, but it also comes at a time when we live in an age of anxiety, when we're not really sure and so about ourselves or about our achievements or about our identity. And so consequently, what do we have to do? We have to bloat ourselves and to remind ourselves and remind others just how wonderful we are. Is that not true? What is, what is Facebook? Here I am, you know, I'm at, I'm a, I'm at an eternity pool in Barbados, eating club sandwiches, you know. Don't you like it? Don't you think it's wonderful? You know, don't you wish you were here? Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> Barbados, okay, Jamaica, I don't care. Yeah, we're, we're so yeah, so there's this, need to kind of uh, aggrandize ourselves, which is really no different when, than, what this, uh, than what this Pharisee is doing, doing. And our worship, what is our worship about? Yes, worship has become, you know, me-focused. Uh, instead of very often the music we sing, the liturgies we have, doesn't focus on God and his glory but it focuses on us telling God all kinds of things that he already knows and that it's incessantly about our needs, our needs, our needs, our needs. And when we don't get our needs met, we, ha we leave the church and go to another one, you know. Um, and that's, the, the, that's certainly the age in which we live in. And so the parable is, was relevant 2,000 years ago. It's relevant for us today. And then he's, he says, well, thank you. He begins to thank the Lord. Um, and he thanks the Lord that um, he is not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Now, there's nothing wrong with thanking the Lord for his grace, all right? There's nothing wrong with thanking the Lord for being delivered from an addiction or being delivered from a, from a form or uh, from a sinful life in the past. That's all very good, yes. 
But notice, I thank the Lord I'm not like somebody else. Yeah, there's a certain contempt and even self-righteousness in the prayer. And again, how many of us when praying about people we don't like or people we have a hard time with or people we don't agree with, yeah, we can ask ourselves, yeah, even if we don't quite say the words, yeah, are we being contemptuous or are are we being self-righteous? And by the way, there's nothing wrong with fasting and there's nothing wrong, it's difficult twice a week, there's, uh, there's, unless you're on a keto diet or something, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with <clears throat> giving a tenth. In fact, this guy doesn't even give a tenth of all he earns. He gives a tenth of everything that passes through his hands. Yeah. But he, he is basing, right, his relationship, or he is using this, right, to... To under, or his understanding is that oh this is this is what um, this is what justifies me with God doing these things, and you know the the, the commandments themselves, you know this is could be debatable, but looking through the Torah and, and the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, the commandments themselves don't quite they don't justify, right. Keeping God's, uh, keeping God's stipulations, his laws, et cetera, et cetera, they're actually, the, the motivation for keeping them is not to sort, get right with God and get, get, be justified. The motivation for keeping them, right, it's a response and a way of entering into holiness. Yes, or it's a way of expressing appreciation and love for what God has already done for us. And uh, if you read Numbers 15, there is, uh, there is a, a sentence uh, at the end of the chapter that says um, Jewish men should wear tzitziot, uh, they should wear tassels, and they should look at the tassels in order to remember all the commandments of the Lord, in order to do them and to be holy, to 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 our God, right? So where does holiness come from? Holiness comes from keeping God's commandments. And if we love God, we may want to do, certainly do more than the minimum. But here's a guy who's saying, well, look at me. You, should, you, you have to be like me, or you have to do what I do, and I want to impose this upon you. By the way, fasting and fasting and giving uh, and more. These are all spiritual disciplines. Okay. These are all spiritual disciplines, and all of us need spiritual discipline. We all need the habit or the routine, yes, of prayer or fasting uh, or giving or maybe keeping our mouth shut when we when we want to say something or uh, whatever it may be. But each of us need different. Uh, we don't all need the same discipline. I'm not sure everybody needs to fast because not everyone has an issue with food or not everyone needs to work extra hard at generosity because some people are just naturally generous. And so here's a guy who's going to say, well, if you're not like me, then I have this, this contempt for you. Uh, and it goes on. So we have a Pharisee who's self-righteous who's self-satisfied, yes, who um, has, an, has, you might say, a false identity. And what is the false identity? It's an identity based on, I'm not like that other person. Thank God, I'm not a Republican. Thank God, <clears throat> I'm not a social. Thank God, I'm not Chinese. Thank God, you know, I'm not a Baptist. Yes. In fact, that you, if you ask me who I am, well, I'm not a Baptist and I'm not Chinese and I'm not a socialist. And many of us form an identity. Yes. Uh, in a sort of, in a negative way. Now, that's not biblical. What is biblical is that the identity we have is that we're made in the image of God. And that it should come, right, 
at the ex at, uh, it first being made in the image of God, and then we be were after that is understood and fully realized, we become disciples of Jesus. Right? We we're born again, and we're we're in God's family. But to have it, to have, to say to base our identity on 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 something negative like that, it's it's, it's uh, you might say it's extremely 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 dangerous. Or to base an identity on anything created is vir virtually becomes a form of idolatry. And uh, many of us form an identity based on, you know, our nationality. And it's, thank God, I'm, I'm Canadian, and I'm not like anybody else. Especially, I'm not like America, right? Or I'm British, and I'm not French. Whatever it may be. Or we base, and I, we base, this, base it on an ethnicity or a religious tradition. And by the way, it's also really wonderful to love one's country, to love one's language, to love one's culture, but it should never be at the expense of another nation or another language or another culture or another religious tradition. And it certainly should, be, should not be at the expense of demonizing such people or such traditions uh, or such nations. So here's a man's piety that's led him to contempt. And he won't even stand next to our, he won't even stand next to the so-called sinner, yeah? And so, here's our tax collector, our poor, poor tax collector. He stands by himself. Um, he, confesses that he's a sinner. We're not even sure that he repents, although it's possible. He beats his breast and he won't look up to heaven. But there's no clear word of repentance. Yes. He's just a sinner saved by grace. And God is merciful to him. And it says that he goes away justified. Yes, and the Pharisee, you know, with all his self-righteousness or self-satisfaction, um, doesn't quite make it. Now, if that was the end of the story, we could just conclude that, you know, God is radical in his grace. He's radical in his love. That this Pharisee was doing what actually some of us do even to this day, trying to limit or to prevent God from being gracious and loving and redeeming to people that we don't like or people we think <coughs> beyond God's, God's reach, redemptive reach. Yep. And we could just say, yeah, God's an inclusive guy and he includes those who are outcasts because being a tax collector meant you were outside the community. And uh, it just goes to show we should have diversity and inclusivity and God's a radical, God's, God's grace is radical in that he loves everyone. But I'm gonna say it's not quite the end of the story because I think there's uh, a continuation of this story or something very, very um, similar found in our, on our uh, incident in Jericho. Jesus is passing through Jericho. He is on his way with great determination to Jerusalem. Um, the messianic expectation, as I said this morning, is very thick. You could have cut it with a chainsaw. This we learn, yes, uh, in, in chapter 19. People were all waiting for the kingdom of God to, to be revealed. And of course, their understanding of the kingdom of God was somewhat even radically different than how Jesus understood it. And as they pass through Jericho, they meet that wee little man, yes, Zacchaeus, yes, which is, uh, it's a uh, Hebrew, sorry, it's a, uh, it's a Greek name, but it's taken from the Hebrew, 
It ironically means someone who's righteous or pure. Uh, and Zacchaeus hears about Jesus coming, this prophet, this you know, person who's going to bring about God's uh, redemptive work at Jerusalem. But of course, he's a tiny guy. And, you know, the average height of a, of a person in the Second Temple period was probably 5'3", or one, one meter six. Uh, but if Zacchaeus was little, it probably meant he was about a meter point five. So he climbs up a sycamore fig tree, and as Jesus passes by, he stops, yes, and he says to the tax, chief tax collector, that's who Zacchaeus is, Zacchaeus, I am coming to your house today. I'm coming to your house today. And of course, Jesus invites himself to the house of, um, to the house of Zacchaeus. And what does Zacchaeus do? Zacchaeus stands up. And he doesn't say, as so many of us say, hey, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I have to tell you, I hate that phrase. And why do I hate it? Because while it is partially true, we're all sinners saved by grace, but it becomes an excuse for us to sin. I really can't control myself. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Love me the way I am. Yes. I, I hope that our identity, yes, is stronger and actually a bit more positive. How about I'm a sinner, I am a sinner, but I'm being transformed slowly, painfully. I'm kicking and screaming, but I'm being transformed into the image of the Messiah. I'm becoming holier. I'm becoming, uh, I'm becoming more, uh, more like Jesus. Yeah, but you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. It just is, is a fallback and, is, and it's a cop-out. And of course we all make mistakes. And it's really interesting, you know, that first tax collector who doesn't necessarily repent could say, I'm, yeah, I'm just that person. I'm gonna rely on God's grace. We don't know if he's gonna change. We don't know about transformation. But the Zacchaeus story is different. Zacchaeus stands up and says, Lord, I'm gonna give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've robbed or cheated anyone, I'm gonna repay them four times. And why do you repay four times? Because that's the stipulation in the Torah. You rob someone, steal a dollar from someone, you're obligated to pay them back four dollars. Okay, dollar ain't worth much. We'll do the shekel, okay? So, here you, have, here you have an acknowledgement, not just an acknowledgement of someone's sin, but you have repentance, yes? And the repentance is practical and the repentance is concrete, right? In the words of John the Baptist, Zacchaeus brought forth fruits of repentance. Again, we have sometimes an attitude, oh, I'm remorseful, I feel sorry, you know, the Lord's gonna forgive me. Yes, the Lord will forgive us. But in many instances where we've harmed or wronged someone else, yes, we need to make some kind of restitution. It might be more than just an apology. So there's repentance. And what, what is so amazing and so uh, phenomenal about the, uh, the passage uh, itself is that um, J Jesus kind of uh, does a reversal of uh, what, we, uh, what we hear about in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. First, I don't know if you've noticed that the people Yes, they sound, the people in Jericho who start to mutter, he's gone to the house of a sinner. They're no different than the Pharisee. They want to exclude 
They want to say, hey, we're better. They don't want the grace of God to touch this person. They don't really want to give this person the opportunity to repent because this wicked person, yes, the sinner, who by the way, when you talk about a sinner in this context, you're not talking about someone who just commits adultery or someone who beats, you know, kicks the dog, you know, when he's in a bad mood. You're talking, you're talking about uh, a person who's cooperating with the enemy. In Yiddish, they call him the stinker, okay? You're talking about, uh, you're talking about a class of people who uh, were uh, enabling Roman brutality, Roman idolatry, Roman immorality, and was frustrating God's plan, so they thought, for the people of Israel. These are pretty horrible people. But you don't want them to repent because what you want is justice for them. You don't want mercy. You want Jesus to say, Zacchaeus, that wicked man is in the tree. I'll call fire down from heaven. Yes, and he'll be like, uh, you know, chicken on a skewer by the time we're done with him. That's what's in, pe that's what's in people's heart. And Jesus, what I think is so interesting, or even, uh, I hope it's comforting to us, he says, he, he does the following. He obviously challenged Zacchaeus or even his presence brought about the repentance of Zacchaeus. And then he said to Zacchaeus, he called Zacchaeus a son of Abraham, right? What it, when Luke uses the term son of Abraham, he's not talking about ethnic identity or Jewish identity. Instead, he's talking about those who are faithful, right? Those who are putting uh, God's, you might say, redemptive program into practice in their lives. He's talking about those who are, uh, who indeed are righteous. So here's, and then Jesus, of course, says salvation has come, you know, salvation has come to this man or salvation has come to this house, not just to him, but his household, because he too is the son of Abraham. What does that mean? Jesus has taken someone who's on the fringe of society, who has no real community, and given him, first of all, given him a new identity, and the identity is now that he's a son of Abraham, and given him a new family. And this, by the way, is how, this is what salvation, or what Luke calls salvation. Now, Jesus hasn't died for his sins. You know, that will come later, right? But think about it, What's, what is spiritual death? Spiritual death is to be in the wrong community, to be in the wrong family. Spiritual death is to be isolated and to have the wrong identity and the wrong understanding uh, of yourself. And of course, Jesus in a moment changes that. And what's so beautiful is that Jesus, yes, in all of this, not only uh, teaches us, right, about the importance of humility and uh, the need for repentance, but he also tells us something about who he is and what he comes to do. And he does it in the most beautiful Jewish way. He does it uh, in a way that's very common uh, in the Second Temple period, as he simply takes one phrase of a verse and puts it together with another phrase from, uh, of a verse from a different part of the Bible. And uh, that beautiful phrase is that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Yes, the Son of Man. You wanna know what the mission of Jesus is? He, he, or you wanna know what his identity or how he understands himself? He understands himself to be the Son of Man, not some human being, that, um, or is someone talking about his so-called human nature, but instead it's this divine, uh, sublime person, yes, in the book of Daniel. I think you, we, all know the, we all know the passage, but it's always wonderful to refresh, yes. The son of man, not the same son of man in Ezekiel, the son of man in Daniel is the one that is, in uh, with God, 
before the, before the creation. It says, in my vision at night, I looked and there was, there was one before me like a son of man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is everlasting, and it will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In this same chapter, the Son of Man goes on to, to, uh, to suffer, uh, to be involved in conflict, and is ultimately vindicated, uh, vindicated by God. So Jesus understands this is who he is. And what does the Son of Man do? This sublime figure that all people will come and bow before him? Oh, he does the, the, the really black, dirty work of a shepherd. So from Ezekiel 34, you have um, a passage in which God uh, has some very hard words to say about the shepherds of Israel. They have failed to do their job. And God says, I'm going to come down and do, uh, I'm going to come down and be the shepherd. Uh, you probably know these passages. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not the shepherds take care of the flock? Yes. Um, but you have not taken care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. Right? So God says, I'm going to come down and search for the lost. Jesus, by the way, is saying, yeah, God, God's going to do that, but actually, I'm doing that. And what does that say about Jesus? It's that he understands himself or how does he understand himself to be? Or how do we read this passage? We read it or understand it, yes, that uh, if Jesus is doing what God says he's going to be doing in, this, uh, in Ezekiel 34, and Jesus is making a claim for us about his divinity. There's no trinity or no elaborate understanding as we have in the book of John or the book of Revelation. But if you think Constantine made Jesus a God, our, our Jewish professor used to say at the Hebrew University, if you think Constantine made Jesus a God, he said, you're wrong. He said, the, the origins of Christology are with Jesus himself. And he said, they're, they're in the Synoptic Gospels. And so Jesus comes and um, in his coming to Zacchaeus, we have a story again of salvation, maybe not salvation as we quite understand it, but salvation from, again, from, from the wrong identity put into the right community, yes, with repentance in all of this, by the way, is, I think, summed up in the sycamore tree. Yes? In the sycamore tree. Does anyone know Hebrew here? What is a sycamore tree in Hebrew? A shikma. Shikma also means what? It means rehabilitation. The, 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 the transformation the conversion, yes, of Zacchaeus occurs when what? Not when he literally climbs the sycamore tree, but the transfiguration, transfiguration, transformation, the rehabilitation, his healing, right, from his brokenness and from the situation which he found, finds himself in. It happens with repentance, yes? It happens with the willingness to admit the need, right? The sin, the brokenness, and taking that second step of repentance. And um, Zacchaeus, was that, Zacchaeus was that wee little man. And I believe the incident in Jericho, in a way, completes uh, 
or gives a fuller picture of that parable. And for our sake, yeah, whether it's we struggle with uh, uh, an anxiety that causes us to have an inflated view of ourselves or causes us to um, look with contempt uh, on other people, thinking that we may somehow be better than them, um, falling back on the excuse we're sinners and somehow we can't help it. I, I hope the story of Zacchaeus points to a better way uh, and a way that points to transformation. But there is no transformation and there's no change unless there's first and foremost humility, certainly followed by repentance. Yes, changing the, our direction and going another way. And may the Lord help us, all of us, to do such and to live not just, uh, or not live in a way to say, saying, we, oh, I repented years ago, but rather to live a lifestyle of repentance. Father, let's pray. Father, we do commit these things to you. And we ask that uh, we will indeed learn from the parable of the of the self-righteous man and uh, learn even more from the, from the story of, of your encounter with Zacchaeus in Jericho. Lord, we pray that uh, indeed we will all undergo divine rehabilitation and again come to a place where we're not simply sinners saved by grace but uh, we're daily being conformed uh, into your image. And again, living lives that glorify you and please you. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.